Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. And welcome to the first release from our audio archive series, which features our old friend Martin Fido, speaking at the Cloak and Dagger Club on the role of scholarship in researching crime history from December 1995. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I do not propose to outline to you yet again my own theory as to who Jack the Ripper was. I expect you have read it. If not, you can read it. I have put it down on two, three audio tapes since writing the original book, The Crimes, Protection and Death of Jack the Ripper. Instead, yes, I'm going to talk about the role of scholarship in crime and, shall we say, sensational history. Does scholarship matter in this area that interests us all? Well, it does. If one takes scholarship as being the tried and tested ways of coming as close as possible to the truth about the past, we must cling to the idea that those of us who are interested in Jack the Ripper are interested in truth. There are plenty of people out there who want to say that we're really secretly interested in cutting up women that we're encouraging other people to want to go around and cut up women. So we'd better be careful that we don't find ourselves writing gory and horrible books all about pools of gleaming blood, and that we concentrate instead on looking as hard as possible for the truth. There's our reputation to think of first. And then, while I don't myself see why it should be any the less important in the sight of God to be an expert on Jack the Ripper than to be an expert, shall we say, on the Spanish Armada or the Battle of Naseby. Nonetheless, there are people carrying out other forms of reputable history, and we can foul them up very badly if we publish a good deal of error. Recently, two delightful booksellers, or a few years ago, two delightful booksellers from Rye wrote an excellent biography of the novelist E.F. Benson, the son of the Archbishop of Canterbury, the author of the light, witty, and delightful Lucia novels. Now, Benson went to King's College, Cambridge, in the 1880s. And at King's College, Cambridge, according to these authors, he met, although he didn't know it, Jack the Ripper, as well as one of the leading suspects at the time. As a student at King's, he knew and was friendly with J.K. Stephen, accused, of course, by Michael Harrison in his life of Prince Albert Victor, the Duke of Clarence, of being Jack the Ripper. But Harrison was the first and the only person seriously to suspect J.K. Stephen, if one sets on one side for a moment the recent offerings of our friend from Gravesend, uh, Mr. Wilding, uh, got his name right, Paul? John Wilding. John Wilding, yes, that's right, who has linked him with Druid. And the other thing which the life of Benson claims is that since Benson joined the Cambridge Philosophical Society, the Apostles, he would have met Montague John Druitt, the man who they say was Jack the Ripper, because Druitt was a notable associate of that homosexual Cambridge group, the Apostles. Well, of course, that notable homosexual group, a philosophical discussion society, started by Alfred Tennyson and his friend Arthur Hallam, contained as one of its most prominent members that not very noted homosexual Bertrand Russell. It was a philosophical group and not a secret gay society. And Montague John Druitt had no connection with it whatsoever. Montague John Druitt was an Oxford man. He took a third class degree. He was not very bright. You had to be very bright to be one of the apostles. And in fact, Benson took a double first. Druitt had no known connection with those people from Cambridge. 
It is sheer speculation from my friends Martin Howells and Keith Skinner's book, The Ripper Legacy, which postulates that because there were a number of homosexuals in the apostles, and because it may reasonably be speculated that Druitt himself had at least pederastic and possibly homosexual tendencies, therefore, as an Oxford man, he might have known these Cambridge men. Oops. Uh, no reason to suppose that for one moment. And the further suggestion that because he had supposed rooms in the inner temple, he would have been friendly with the surrounding Cambridge men who had other rooms in other parts of the inner temple. Oops, again. One of the oldest canards floating down river history, the notion that Montague John Druitt's rooms in the temple were anything but shared offices of the kind we're all completely familiar with from Rumpole of the Bailey. <laughs> and if you can imagine Rumpole nipping back into those offices to change out of his blood-stained clothes, have a bath, and sink to bed in relief there before the rest all came in in the morning, you can go on imagining that that's where Jack the Ripper hung out. Frankly, I don't think it will bear historical water at all. No, our first duty in scholarship is to try to get facts right. And we have, I'm afraid, been notably incautious about fact. I'm sure everyone here will detect immediately the errors in this recently published brief account of Annie Chapman's murder. The body was found shortly after 6 a.m. The head had been almost severed from the body and then tied in place with a handkerchief. The body was cut open, as in the case of Mary Nichols, and the kidney and the ovaries had been removed. Two front teeth were missing, repeating curious features of the Nichols murder, and two brass rings and some coppers were laid at her feet. In another corner of the yard was the torn corner of a blood-stained envelope containing the crest of the Sussex Regiment. Under a tap was a leather apron. It seems possible that these last two items were intended to mislead the police. If you were an unfortunate group of students compelled to work and learn this, I should be looking sharply round and saying, and Mr. Savory, which errors did you point, uh, spot in that? Clearly, we have absolutely untrue an error, the statement that a kidney was taken from Annie Chapman. We have a gray area presented as definite. Two front teeth were missing. The police and the press said that front teeth were missing from Annie Chapman's mouth, from the lower jaw. Whereas, for some reason, Dr. Baxter Phillips, who reported on it, said her front teeth were perfect. Quite frankly, we don't know which of them was right today. And, uh, Finally, we have speculation. It seems possible that the leather apron and the piece of envelope were placed there to mislead the police. Well, we do know that the owner of the leather apron said quite clearly why it was where it was. He was the son of Mrs. Richardson, who ran the packing case business from that house, and he had left it with her to be washed, and it had been washed under the standpipe in the yard, and that is why it was there. The leather apron hit the press, but was very quickly dismissed from police consideration. Now, these are not intended to mislead. Not a single error there is used by the author to put forward any strange or even plausible theory of his own. They're just errors. But errors like that get handed on and on and on. When I worked on the Murder Guide to London, I made the discovery that if notable, any volume of notable British trials contains an error anywhere, that error would be carried on for 20, 30, 40 years. You really have to check back to sources. The first duty of the serious scholarly historian approaching crime, sensation, or any other subject right down to the more tedious lives of the duller medieval saints is to get back to the original sources and ideally present those sources in the book in the form of footnotes. Now, here one hits a commercial problem. 
publishers hate footnotes because they're very expensive to print. But thanks to the sterling work of Paul Begg and Philip Sugden in persuading their publishers that footnotes were essential, I think we have every hope of getting serious future books on Jack the Ripper properly documented as indeed this year's important two books, The Lodger and Jack the Ripper, what's the full title? The Simple Truth. The Simple Truth, both are. If you want to know what Bruce Paley, why Bruce Paley says what he says, you can turn to the back of the book and see whether he has got it from police papers, from newspapers of the time, or from quoting some idiot like me who is perfectly capable of putting error into books, as I have done in my own book on Jack the Ripper, for example, firmly placing George Yard buildings on the wrong side of the road. Uh, I won't bother to explain to you how I came to make that mistake, but I made it, and I have yet to publish a book which does not contain some error. It is exceedingly difficult to avoid error. We have to try to, and one of our best ways is to make sure we go back and look for our sources. This applies right across the range. Uh, we won't stay with the Ripper the whole time. There are other things to think about. Consider the infamous Baconian theory, the notion that Bacon wrote Shakespeare. Given not a second's credence by anyone who has ever seriously studied the Elizabethan period and looked at any original documents from there, the whole idea was dreamed up by an American spinster called Delia Bacon, who wound up in an asylum where she belonged after having <laughs> traveled to England sat at the feet of the statue of Francis Bacon, who was no relation of hers, but dreamed that he might be, uh, given him due awe and reverence, and decided he was clever enough to have written Shakespeare's plays. If you have read any of Bacon's essays, you would realize that he might have been clever enough to have thought the ideas out. He certainly hadn't got the style to produce the poetry. Delia Bacon, the sole source Nobody at the time ever hinted at any suggestion that Bacon or anybody but William Shakespeare wrote the works of William Shakespeare. Let's take another fascinating area of sensational history of considerable interest to us since it's managed to wander its way by foul rather than fair means, I think, into the supposed history of Jack the Ripper. The Freemasons. Who are they, and what is their history? Go back to the sources, and you find that they turn up first in London in the early 18th century, when a group of gentlemen emerge and say that they are a secret society, they have existed for a very long time, and they are now going public. And when an explanation is sought as to what this secret society is and how it came into being, out they come with the story that they are the true heirs of the medieval guild of peripatetic masons. Peripatetic traveling from town to town and city to city to repair churches and cathedrals. Therefore, they did not belong to any of the well-known and established city guilds of stonemasons, as today's London Livery Company of Masons, they wandered. And since they wandered, they left secret signs for each other as to where were good places to work and where were good places to stay. And thus they became a secret fraternity. And now their traditions were being carried on by these 18th century gentlemen, just as so many city gentlemen today carry on the traditions and dish out the endowments of the working craftsmen of London's 16th and 17th centuries, in the Haberdashers' Company and the Fishmongers' Company and all the rest of them. Okay, that's the Mason's story of where they come from. But you go a little further and you find that they offer also some secret law derived, they say, from a seer who lived perhaps in the 17th century and whose name was Alexander or Christian Rosenkreutz. German for rose or red cross. And he's a very mysterious figure, because outside the Masonic law, there is no trace whatsoever as him of his ever having existed. But when you go back and look for medieval documentation, 
you find that there's no trace whatsoever either of any peripatetic masons having existed in the Middle Ages. Yes, you had them by the 19th century. Hardy's Jude the Obscure, wandering around Wessex, mending churches and cathedrals, getting jobs in Oxford. He's a peripatetic stonemason. But in the Middle Ages, if your cathedral was falling down, you called in the local stonemasons, exactly as I would today if my windowsill started falling down. I would not leave secret signs out and hope that a wandering mason would come across them and decide I was a good employer. Now, this really didn't begin to bother people very much until the 20th century, because frankly, nobody much except Freemasons cared who or what Freemasons were. If they wanted to dress up in aprons, roll up their trousers, have a good dinner and give money to charity, that was their business. But various people, including, alas, river historians, suggested that they might be up to very nefarious things, and so a greater interest in their history arose in the 20th century. Now, we find a couple of interesting lines of this history followed in sensational sources, and oddly enough, they both come back to the same, author, uh, the same potential answer. One of them, followed through by a historian from Kansas, followed on from his starting a study of the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. Uh, that, you remember, was the first attempt to persuade Mrs. Thatcher not to introduce a poll tax. <laughs> they chopped off Simon of Sudbury's head for it, but the good lady still took her own risks. She lasted about two years, exactly as he had done after introducing it, but it's not a good idea to introduce poll taxes in England. Well, the Peasants' Revolt struck this man, as he looked at it, as being very, very odd indeed, because it wasn't led by a peasant. And it was impossible to see who, what Tyler, the leader of these peasants, was. He was quite clearly a gentleman. He was treated as a gentleman and accepted as a gentleman wherever he went. But there was no great gentlemanly family of the Tylers that he came from. And the oddity then struck him that this strange name Tyler, T-Y-L-E-R, is also a name which we find in Freemasonry for the member of a lodge who tiles it or seals it up, in other words, closes the door before the secret meetings actually begin. And the notion that that's because somebody put on tiles spelt it with a Y to roof in a building at the end, which Masons would like one to feel, showing that they are a thoroughly stonemasonly guild, just doesn't seem to add up. We don't really find language being used that way. We don't find this as being very probable. <laughs> so he noted that, and he noted other things. For example, that the peasants, when they swept through London, left the temple buildings alone. They robbed, pillaged, destroyed almost wherever they went. And the other great hospital of the Knights Hospitallers, the uh, St. John's up in, 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 in Clerkenwell, the headquarters of the Knights Hospitallers, the Knights of Malta as they uh, are now, the Knights of St. John, was absolutely destroyed by the Peasants' Revolt, except for that gate and building which remains there now, a little bit in that area. And he reflected on this. Now, the Templars had been kicked out of the temple because, as we know, the Order of the Knights Templars was destroyed by uh, Philip the Fair of France when he wanted to grab their money. They'd become the equivalent of a huge multinational corporation, and the French king accused them of witchcraft, tortured them, burnt them, got lots of confessions out of them, and persuaded other kings to follow suit and absolutely eliminate the Order of Templars. England was one of the slowest countries to follow this up. Uh, Edward II, I think it was, was not interested in pursuing the Templars and really had to be persuaded by fellow sovereigns and the Pope to suppress them. But it was done with less cruelty in England than elsewhere. It was pretty clear that not all the Templars in Europe had been killed, not all had been imprisoned, and they must have had lots of servants and hangers-on as well. This leads to the theory that since they were in grave danger of being arrested for witchcraft and executed, if they were recognized as Templars, yet they wanted to help each other, that they might have carried on a secret society. Now, that's deduction from sources. <coughs> the less reputable line of inquiry is the one which comes to us from Bajant, Lee, and Lincoln, those three delightful authors who gave us the... Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, and all those theories that the Merovingian kings were direct descendants of Jesus, and that a secret order exists to this day 
determined to put them back on Charlemagne's throne in Europe and give the royal house of Jesus royal standing in Europe. Most of us who enjoy mystery history will have enjoyed their work very much. They began not by looking at the Templars, not by looking at the Peasants' Revolt, which barely comes into their work, not even by looking at Jesus, but by looking at the mystery of Rennes-le-Chateau, a castle, a village in France, where at the end of the 19th century, a parish priest found secreted inside the altar two parchments containing cryptic messages and he appears to have managed to interpret them and he suddenly became very rich and nobody has ever known exactly what it was that he uncovered what he had found and how he became very rich well beginning research on this major lee and lincoln came across a secret society quasi-masonic called the Prieure de Sion, and through this, they gradually got hints and claims that this was the true direct line coming down from the Templars, that the Templars had known that the Merovingians were the true descendants of Jesus, and that they had nominated new masters of their order right down the generations to try and secure the restoration of the royal house of Jesus. The trouble as they went on with their work was that their main informant on this, a gentleman called Pierre Plantard de Sion, uh, who later suddenly dropped out and resigned from being head of the order and clammed up completely, had a very mixed up past. He had, for example, been involved with pro-fascist movements in France in the 1930s and had rather characteristically the worst sorts of reasons for wanting to get into secret societies. He wanted power-giving secrets. But they learnt from him that masonry and these secret societies derived from the temple. Very exciting book they wrote. Lots of new, uh, well, three books they wrote. Lots of new and interesting material in it. And yet, reading it through, it never really rang true because it practiced synthetic scholarship. It pulled together all sorts of different and disparate ideas to try and build up a case. Very dangerous approach in solving mysteries. Stay with the facts in front of you. Don't go out as they do to say, ah, the King Arthur legends, they must be a part of it. The Sangreal, the chalice of the Last Supper that King Arthur and his knights searched for. Linguistics tells us, can't really be a Sangreal of that kind, it's the Sangreal, the royal blood of Jesus. Oh dear, we've met people before who go in for this sort of, here's a legend from this end of the earth, there's one from that end of the earth. They pull in the Turin Shroud, they pull in a mystical icon of Jesus that seems to have wandered around the Byzantine Empire, and they claim that that was the Turin Shroud folded up small and put behind a grill. They jump everywhere to pull in anything that will come. This is a grave danger. The danger we'll find in Ripper work, if you start with a conclusion, you'll suddenly find that instead of going back to the sources to learn from them and see where they lead you, you're selecting from the sources and pulling in, synthesizing a case, ignoring the disparity of the elements that you're bringing together. This was, of course, the classic modus operandi of the nearly great Barmy scholar, very popular, great bestseller in the 1950s and 60s, Emmanuel Velikovsky. Now, Velikovsky's basic theory, as he worked it out, was that at a period in the distant past, a comet had swept incredibly through the solar system, bringing Mars and Venus alarmingly close to the Earth, making the Earth spin backwards, and leading to all sorts of changes, and getting all sorts of ideas about time madly confused. Worlds in collusion was his great basic idea. He started, as so many wonderful theorists start, from a small and odd mystery. How could anybody ever think 
that when Joshua marched seven times round the walls of Jericho, the sun stood still for a day and then the walls fell in. Uh, well, Velikovsky had the explanation for that. Clearly what happened was this was the work of the comet and the Earth spun backwards. Let's forget the fact that many scientists have pointed out that if the Earth ever spun backwards, we should all be swept away and the surface would be ripped off it as the change happened and it would be utterly destructive. Velikovsky looked for other notions connected with this extraordinary interplanetary activity. He decided that the seven plagues of Egypt were caused by this. He rather hoped there was living matter on Venus and thought that the frogs and flies might have come from there as we got too close to Venus, swept in by the tail of the comet which had gone through uh, both Venus and into the Earth's atmosphere. He thought that time had got mixed up in the Egyptian empire. I found this aspect of his history fascinating when I first discovered it. That somehow the pharaoh's reigns had got doubled on each other and that was why, as we know, when you go to the Old Testament, you can line up everything it says as history beautifully and accurately with the Babylonian empires and the Persian empires lying to the east of Palestine. But you can't make it fit what we know, the history of Egypt at all. It's impossible to find out exactly when the children of Israel are supposed to have been in Egypt. Well, Velikovsky said, of course, you see, all this spinning the earth round backwards got people mixed up with time, and they started recording uh, the... Um, dynasties of Egypt twice over. So we've really got one history doubled in length and no wonder nothing will fit. It sounds very persuasive and very plausible. And he backs it up from all over the place with material from legends from, from China that the sun once rose in the uh, west and set in the east and linguistic notions from South America. None of it really proves his points. And indeed, the more we found out about the planets, the more we found they're impossible. Yet there is still a Velikovsky Society, and it contains another warning for us as we approach our mystery and criminal history. The Velikovsky Society exists to oppose the scientific mafia. Because Velikovsky undoubtedly carried out and encouraged a great deal of fascinating research into ancient history. And he put forward theories which were entitled to be given a hearing. And in fact, Senior scientists simply leapt in as one and said, forget it, it's rubbish. Ignore all the stuff that he's got to say about history. He's not worth paying a moment's attention to. And this has been seen as a dangerous tendency today, a dangerous tendency that we will bow too quickly and too easily to science. I think this has happened in a remarkable piece of recent uh, forensic archaeology. Perhaps you saw that splendid documentary in which that glorious old southwestern professor dressed like an oil rigger with a cowboy hat, sounding like something out of the films, went down to South America to look for the body of the Sundance Kid. We'd always known that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid went to South America. It was reported they'd been killed there. Subsequently reported that Cassidy hadn't been killed and had got away back to America. He was unsure whether they'd both been killed, where they were. Well, he located the place where they should have been killed. He located the burial ground, the graveyard in which they should have been buried. He located the point at which they should have been buried. He came to a first foreign skeleton, which was pretty clearly a German carpenter, nothing to do with them, and then a skeleton which absolutely fitted everything one knew about Harry Longbar, the Sundance Kid. It was the right height. It had the right sort of clothes on it. It had dental work, which was absolutely compatible with the types of dental work carried out in Chicago at Longbar's time. Skull measurements fitted the known photographs of Longbar. He really did seem to have got it. But he wanted to put it to the final, latest, and most up-to-date scientific test, and he traced a descendant of Harry Longbar's father, uh, grandfather, and ran a DNA test. And the DNA test said, no, nothing to do. Completely different. Well, after all this work, years of work, years of traveling, digging, assessing, weighing, measuring, uh, the poor old professor ended his documentary with the classic scholarly utterance, ah, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he was wrong. 
quite frankly, I think Harry Longmore's mother was no better than she should have been. <laughs> that test came down through his father. The historical work that he had done was impeccable. It's very easy for us to trust science too far at the moment. And we have the clearest proof of this in our own field, Jack the Ripper. When Keith Skinner and I were asked, how many years ago is it now, three, four, whether it was worth publisher Robert Smith's going and bidding for the Maybrick Diary, we had only seen a transcript of it and a photocopy of some pages. And we both said, as far as history was concerned, on a preliminary reading, we couldn't see anything that proved it wasn't genuine. We didn't think it was genuine, but we couldn't say immediately, well, he says there were eight victims and we know there weren't, or something totally ridiculous like that. But we said to him, for heaven's sake, get the paper tested scientifically. Because I was aware that the forgeries of the Ashdown Library man, whose name has escaped me for the moment, and the Hitler diaries have both been exposed by scientific testing of the paper and the discovery that it included components not used at the time it was supposed to have been made. And I said, if you can get the ink tested as well, and I didn't know whether ink tests were viable or not, have that looked at. Because I said, and my goodness, I was wrong in the end, science is going to tell you much more clearly than historical scholarship if you've got a definite anachronistic forgery. All right, it turned out that the scientists it went to thought the ink was the best thing to test. So that diary has been through a succession of tests, all carried out by reputable scientists working from well-supplied laboratories, and they have had the following results. The first person to look at it said, the diary is a forgery because the ink dissolves off the paper too easily. It contains no iron and I would expect ink of the period to contain iron, or to be more precise, he said, uh, there are no signs that it contains iron. He was asked and asked and asked to change his opinion, uh, but he wouldn't, and he said the black in it is a substance known as, ah, it's about to give a trade name, and not the name I, Nigrescence, uh, uh, Paul will remind, Nigrescine, Nigrescine, a uh, <clears throat> synthetic dye, which I've never seen in inks, he said, earlier than 1960. So that seemed to put it to one side. Publisher didn't stop there. He had it also sent on to another scientific document examiner. Well, this one came up and said, first of all, it's chock full of iron, exactly as you'd expect of ink at the time. Secondly, nigrosine was patented in the 1860s, and close examination shows that it probably was used in fountain pennings, early stylographic inks, by the 1870s and 1880s. And his spectrographic analysis found no components which were modern and incompatible with its being perfectly genuine and of the period. The first scientist said, all right, he would waive his fee. He didn't want any of his work to be used. He was thoroughly dissatisfied with the way this was proceeding. After that, we get the Mike Barrett confessions and, his, and the suggestion that he bought the ink at a certain shop, and that particular shop said, well, if we sold a manuscript ink, it would be one called diamine. And diamine ink used nigrosy, not very commonly used in writing inks today. So this looked a very, very clear key. But no, uh, the maker of the diamine ink put in a report, can't be our ink if you've had it sent to laboratories. We've got a very modern component in, which we use as a preservative, which your laboratory should have picked up at once and very easily. So now we go back to the man who has said, there's nothing modern in it, and say, what about this modern preservative? And he said, well, wait a minute. I've got to set this very expensive machine to take readings on all these things. So another attempt is made, and this time people who don't believe in the diary get hold of some samples of the ink, send it out to an industrial laboratory and say, look for this modern preservative. And the industrial laboratory pops up and says, it's here, there's no doubt about it, this ink is completely anachronistic. And the 
publishers of the diary say, well, we've got to take this serious. And they go to the University of Leeds, whose dye division is accepted by Parker Pens as their research uh, advisor. And the University of Leeds puts it through and they say, oh no, they're wrong. We thought we'd found it at first, but that was mere contamination of our sample. There is no modern component in it. It's genuine. There you go. Two for, two against, all reputable, nobody with an axe to grind. Very, very sadly, if it came to a court of law, one would be looking again at the fact that expert witnesses happened to have found for the side that employed them, but that, I'm prepared to say, was probably just chance. I don't doubt the integrity of any of those laboratories. Science can make mistakes. We must remember that whenever we are looking back at criminal and sensational history. The science might seem to have the answer, but check it very, very carefully. Now, we've got to go back to the tried and tested methods of history. Sources. Who said it at the time? What did they say at the time? Now, in terms of Jack the Ripper, we've got three sorts, four sorts of contemporary sources. We've got police papers of one kind and another. We've got the reports of inquests where people gave sworn testimony to what they had seen. We've got the memoirs of people who were to a greater or lesser extent involved in the cases. And we have got other news reports on the cases. And we cannot reject out of hand any one of these. I don't know whether Stephen Knight, the late Stephen Knight, made an error or simply swept away something which was getting in his way when he said he hadn't bothered with newspaper reports because the newspapers simply made up stories and were quite unreliable. Well, we know this is true. We know that William de Kew said he and two of his mates would go down to Whitechapel at the time of the murders and each invent a new theory and push it for all they were worth in the papers the next day and come back down and invent another one for the following week. Nevertheless, those newspapers give us facts which we can't get anywhere else and we have to assess them. They do come last on the list of reliable sources. Police papers, well, they're of varying kinds. We have to assess what they are. We take the first and most famous of the police papers, the McNaughton Memoranda, discovered originally by Dan Farson and then Don Rumbelow finding the further copy in the Scotland Yard papers. We have to remember that this was not a paper prepared as part of the solution of the case. Indeed, McNaughton had no place on the case. He hadn't even joined the force at the time of the murders. He prepared that as a statement. As far as we can see, he prepared it as material to be made available if the Home Secretary or anybody else needed it to make a statement about the claims coming out in the sun that cut Bush the mutilator, or the bottom stabber, was actually Jack the Ripper. So he names, as Don Rambelow says, three people, any one of whom was more likely to have been the Ripper than Carl. We have to go to other people's memoirs and recollections of him to find, from G.R. Sims, from uh, Colonel Arthur, that, in fact, he did think his first choice, Montague John Druid, was the Ripper. It was a theory he had reached personally. Wasn't necessarily the conclusion of the whole force. That's one sort of police paper. Other police papers, which tend not to be on the files. The ones on the files are not, they're useful for telling us what happened around the murders, but they don't tell us what the police thought. The ones which tell us what they really thought about who might have been the ripper or who the suspects were have nearly all gone. So we're looking outside to the notes that Chief Inspector Swanson wrote on Sir Robert Anderson's memoirs and to the letter recently discovered by Little Child. Now in both of those we find the same thing. One must read them closely. One has a duty to read closely what one's looking at. The Swanson marginalia do not say Kosminski was the ripper. Their last words are Suspect was Kosminski. Suspect. 
Valence glossed as to Anderson's reasons for saying he believed the suspect was the Ripper. But they show very clearly that Swanson did not believe it with the same degree of certainty that Sir Robert Anderson did. Because Anderson is quite satisfied the Ripper was immediately identified by the only person who ever set eyes on him. Swanson says, and after this identification, which suspect knew of, the murders ceased. Swanson then looks for later circumstantial evidence to support what had convinced Anderson at once and out of hand. Swanson was not so sure. And the Swanson marginalia, like the uh, McNaughton memoranda, give us a further problem. They contain errors. Swanson says his man Kosminski died shortly after transfer to Coney Hatch when he wrote that at least 22 years after Kosminski had transferred to Coney Hatch because the book he wrote him wasn't published till 1910 and far from being dead, the fellow was still alive and had another nine years to live. How did that error come about? We don't know. There are other less important errors of placing in the Swanson notes, but they're there. As for McNaught, telling us that he thought he knew who the Ripper was after careful consideration, he gets his age, and his occupation wrong. He says he's 41 years old and a doctor, when we know that the man his name was 31 years old and a barrister. And according to one account of a lost uh, McNaughton document, he may have said that his first name was Michael, whereas his first name was Montague. So McNaughton is grasping at something he's not very sure of. Where we've got errors, we have to look with great caution. The papers then must be assessed for their own work worth after close reading. As in the end, must the inquest testimony. Very good information. Very few people are going to go in and tell lies under oath in an inquest. I know Mrs. Mary Malcolm did. The woman who turned up at Elizabeth Stride's inquest and said, this woman was my sister. Uh, she had an illegitimate child by a policeman and all sorts of other things which were completely untrue. Nobody knows why Mrs. Malcolm did that, but she's very unusual. We have then to assess the inquest testimony for what it seems to be worth. And that means the historian must make up his own mind as to whether he thinks those witnesses who said that, or one who turned up at the inquest, another report in the papers, who said that Mary Jane Kelly was alive, well, and getting drunk, or throwing up after having been drunk the night before, at a time when everyone else, doctors and all, were sure she'd been dead for several hours. How does that testimony come to exist? The historian is entitled to assume that that witness was right and everybody else was wrong. And it's up to the reader to decide how far he wants to let that weight of numbers seem persuasive or otherwise. Looking at the various newspaper reports, you would have to ask yourself, well now, which are correct? The ones in which she says that she knew Mary Jane Kelly very well, or the ones in which she says she hadn't spoken to her for three months before the last morning of what she thought was her life? We've got those to put together. Which is correct? The report that she's supposed to have made to the papers that she could place the day accurately because she'd just gone out to return some that her husband had borrowed to another lodging house? Or the report she made at the inquest that she remembered that day accurately because she'd gone out to the dairy for some milk that morning. We have conflicting evidence. We have to weigh it up and we have to recognize gray areas. Now this perhaps is something which we're always weak on if we start with a theory. We jump to sweep past our gray areas and say, we're all right, we can go ahead here. <coughs> the inquest reports, the police papers, and finally the memoirs. Well, the memoirs, again, one assesses by their accuracy and honesty. How far do they conform to what people swore to in the inquest reports? This is a very good first test. So on the basis of this test, that we say quite confidently, Major Smith was quite unreliable. He keeps remembering things that we know didn't happen. It's for this reason that we write off Ben Leeson's memory of his involvement with the post-Ripper case of 1891. And one must always say, all these people who are wrong and who are exaggerating, they remember something. They're resting something on something. 
And we've got to be careful how heavily we lean on them, unless we can find memoir writers who look totally reliable, or whose errors, as I would say, and this becomes a matter of judgment, as in the case of Walter Dew, are the relatively unimportant uh, misrecollections of bits of geography looking back over 20 years. So we base our support on what we can see from others. Where we have to move away from facts is when our sources conflict, our facts are clearly wrong, or there are not enough of them. What are we to do about the fact that our two sources, we have one man and one man only involved in the case who says quite definitely he knew who Jack the Ripper was. So remember that Inspector Littlechild doesn't say that. Inspector Littlechild says another suspect and a very good one to his mind was Dr. Tumblety. It's a long way from saying he thought Tumblety was the Ripper, and it's a long way from saying that Tumblety was the prime suspect of Scotland Yard. Both claims have been made, neither can be validated from any evidence that comes from the time. What we know is he's one that Littlechild chose to report on. But we do have one source who says he knew who the Ripper was, he's quite sure. And he'll give a pointer to the sort of person he was, that is Sir Robert Anderson. And then we find that when he is apparently backed up by Chief Inspector Swanson writing his notes on them, some of the things Swanson says contradict Anderson's account elsewhere. Since Anderson wrote his book in serial form for Blackwood's magazine and then revised it for publication. And in Blackwood's, he said that the identification of the suspect took place after he had been safely caged in a lunatic asylum. He eliminated that phrase from the book. Swanson comes up with a wholly different story about the suspects being taken off to a seaside home somewhere and then let go because the witness refused to swear to his identification, although he made a positive identification. Now, this is a very, very weird story indeed. And uh, two scholars I trust, myself and Paul Begg, have come to totally <laughs> diametrically opposed views on this. I think the story is so impossible. Swanson must have got it wrong. He's mixing it up with something else or something. I don't know what, but he must be wrong. And Paul says it is so impossible. It must be right. Swanson, of all people, must have known he was writing something totally unpersuasive. Judgment has to come in. Judgment will lead to deduction, which we've looked at earlier. You might deduce facts about the Mason. And from deduction, you make your next leap to speculation. If you have a real gap, you are speculating. Now, this is perfectly legitimate, provided you make clear you're doing so. But it is illegitimate to rest a further argument on a speculation. If it is dangerous to rest an argument on a grey area, which isn't a positive fact, it is totally illicit to rest further argument on speculation. That way you build houses of cards, and I'm afraid far too many of the books on the Ripper are houses of cards. You've listened patiently. I just want to say one last thing. Beware of that very persuasive-sounding phrase, there is not a shred of evidence. Anybody with a new theory is likely to produce that about all the people named in old theories. Most of the time, it's quite untrue. Evidence that you can offer in court is not the same as historical evidence. To take somebody who I don't believe for a moment was Jack the Ripper, and I don't think I've ever heard anybody suggest was Jack the Ripper, Michael Ostrom, the third of the suspects, named by Melville McNaughton. It is true to say there is not a shred of evidence against Ostrog that we could produce in court today. But there is a very important shred of historical evidence against him. Melville McNaughton, who knew the men on the case, even if he wasn't on it himself, says he was one of three people far more likely to have been the Ripper than Cutbush. We know from Sims, from Major Arthur, that those three were whittled down from a list of ten suspects, of whom it's reasonable to suppose Tumblety was another. There seem to be four real suspects we know about. There is historical evidence concerning them. There is historical evidence that the police did pull in Michael Kidney and question him at great length and took away his clothes. Now, they failed to find evidence they could bring up in court, but there is evidence that they too thought initially this is a suspicious man. That is evidence of suspicion and, for heaven's sake, 
I don't think we're going to get cast-iron proof of who Jack the Ripper was. We're going to have to look at suspicions and say which ones are sensible. AP Wolf suspect, Michael Kidney, the, the boyfriend of Elizabeth Stride, suspected by him or her, I'm not sure which gender Mr. or Miss Wolf or Mrs. Wolf is. Uh, it is a he. The rumour's been going around that it was a she. <laughs> the, uh, AP Wolf is right, statistically, to say the commonest killers of women are their male lovers. And so Kidney and Barnett had to be looked at. These are among the serious historical suspects. Where were... Oh dear. I don't think that's evidence at all. Where one has the evidence of somebody who had a bright idea any time between 1970 and 1995? Oh dear. You can pick names out of a hat. But you better find somebody who was on the spot, who was suspected by someone else at the time, or would definitely have been suspected automatically today. That's where Michael Kidney comes in. He would, was never, as far as we can see, questioned in the way Barnett was. And yet it would have made sense for him to have been so questioned. These are suspects against whom there is a shred of historical evidence. And you've been very patient. Let me allow everyone to go and get more drinks and after relaxation I'll answer any questions if anyone wants to put any questions. suggest that it was not Mary Kelly, and if not, why has this ridiculous theory gained any credence at all? Right, the question was, because I'm not sure that everybody could hear it back Sorry. there, recently various writers have suggested that perhaps the corpse in Miller's court was not Mary Jane Kelly. Are there, by strict scholarly criteria, any reasons for thinking that this corpse was not Mary Jane Kelly, and if not, why has the idea come about? Well, I would have to say, and I would turn to Paul Begg, if he's in here, to Bruce, uh, who is over there for confirmation, I can think of no contemporary evidence to suggest that anyone seriously doubted that the corpse was Mary Jane Kelly. But when one goes back and looks at the documented evidence at the time, we have the problem that Joe Barnett, who identified the body, said he identified it by the ears and eyes. Now, according to the report of Dr. Bond, which only emerged in 1988, the ears had been cut off. We may deduce or speculate, yes, that a reporter misheard Barnett's accent when he said ears, that he meant hair. But you do have a question, given that the face was said to be unrecognizable virtually even by mind, and you could only tell it by the ears, stroke, hair, and eyes, that gives an opening for people. There is a further opening in that some press reports, and Paul Begg is much stronger on these than I am, talking vaguely about the victim having, in the New York papers, she's given another name, I've forgotten what it is, Elizabeth something? Foster. Is it? No, Foster was the one she was drinking with that night. But the New York papers give a different name, Margaret. Just a vague name, Margaret, for this victim. And talk about her living with a small boy in an upstairs flat. Now, this clearly has nothing to do with Mary Jane Kelly, who lived on her own in the downstairs flat. Though, again, I think we have one press report, and Bruce will correct me if I'm wrong about this, which suggests that Barnett thought that she did have a small one. No, not Barnett, but someone else did. Right, somebody, again, we have people who thought she had a small boy uh, farmed out by the Elephant Castle somewhere in South London, something like that. 
So we have some indeterminacy. We also have the immense problem that the first-rate researchers, Neil Sheldon, Paul Begg, who initially went and looked for the backgrounds to these victims, were able to find roughly the life stories of all of them except Mary Jane Kelly. And when you go to the original source documents, now we go to things like birth certificates, we're no longer looking for answers, we're just trying to trace who people were. Birth certificates, marriage certificates, rape books, all this sort of thing. Nothing can be found to support the story that Joe Barnett gave of Mary Kelly's career. And so you have to make what you can of the fact that there is nothing to support that. To the best of my recollection, the first serious suggestion that it was not Mary Jane Kelly, but somebody else, came from Joe Sickert. Now, everything comes from Joe Sickert as a source. There is a scholarly point. You may have noticed recently a gentleman whose name I think was Sequili, or something like that, who has been floating around the papers. You may have seen the film he has introduced, which has been shown on television here in America, of 1940s surgeons wearing what appear to be asbestos suits, dancing laboriously round a wax doll, which we are told is an alien that landed in a spaceship. Roswell. Uh, Ros Roswell. Roswell. Right. Now this, uh, this, this has been shown in England and America. There's an article in Time magazine saying that Mer Americans are very up in the air about is this genuine or is it not. Well, I first met this gentleman some years ago when he's a collector, he's that sort of researcher, he finds things of interest, and he had found uh, a piece of early Elvis Presley film which was believed to have been completely destroyed and deleted, which interested him in Presley, and he did some more research on his own account. And I was approached by a publisher who may be known to some called Robert Smith, <laughs> to know whether we could discuss the possibility of a book concerning the murder of Elvis Presley. Because this gentleman, Mr. Roswell, had come forward with the suggestion that he had gone to bank accounts and he approved that Elvis had been murdered by his girlfriend, Ginger Something. <laughs> now, if you know the facts of Elvis's death, he died of an overdose of drugs. It was reported on his death certificate that this was an accidental overdose. His body was found in his lavatory, which he used as a sort of residential throne room. <laughs> he had gone through to this at some part of the small hours of the morning when he'd uh, finally gone to bed. He lived backwards through the night rather than the day most of the time. And to get to this bathroom, he had to go out past Ginger, whatever she is, and into the bathroom. And the suggestion we had was that it was quite impossible that he should have done this without waking her up. She must have known that he'd gone there, paid him the pills, gone back, and waited for him to die before giving the alarm that she'd woken up late and found him dead. And you had only to look at the bank account and see how much money she was making. Now, I was told that this brilliant thing had got the FBI investigating it, and Kerry Packer in Australia was completely committed to it and was starting a multi-million dollar television project for international showing, would I like to write the backup book? I said, I'd love to, provided somebody had spoken to Ginger, whatever she was, and asked for her opinion on this theory. And it turned out that nobody had done. Well, considering the amount she could have taken us all for in damages if anything went forward, that was left alone. One may add that uh, I've forgotten that the further fact is that the dose of drugs he had taken was so heavy and peculiar that ultimately his official biographer concluded that he could not have taken it accidentally and it must have been suicide. And he wrote an appendix book, an additional book to his formal biography, saying he now believed Elvis had committed suicide. He had perfectly good reasons to. Poor fellow got fatter than I'm getting even and no longer looked plausible uh, when singing and dancing in the tours, which he hated doing. Now, when somebody has come up with a theory like that, and then puts him on the side because he's got photographs of aliens anyway, and then turns up with a film of an alien being... No. Uh, and the same, I'm afraid, is true of Joseph Sickert. I would not say that any scholar with a reasonably busy life would spend any time investigating any story of Joseph Sickert unless they wanted to find out more about Joseph Sickert. But you are not going to find out anything of real interest about Jack the Ripper from that particular source. That, I believe, is the original source for the suggestion that there was another body. 
and it has suited some other theorists to go along with it. But I don't know of any serious evidence from the time to suggest that this could be the case. It's an interesting point, though, that you've got three independent witnesses, but the police didn't like to follow up on it. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not, I wouldn't stand up to it myself, right. but it is an interesting point to look back on, isn't it? Now, when you say the police, the, the gentleman is referring to the fact that not only Mrs. Oh, Maxwell. <laughs> Sorry about this. Yes. Yeah. Any people out there are leaving in ten minutes? Yes, time, right, you are. They are so enamoured of you. All right. <laughs> um, Mrs. Maxwell. Now remember, that Caroline Maxwell. When you suggest that the police did nothing about it, they not only took Caroline Maxwell's deposition, they put her up and let her give it under oath at the inquest. So you you can't take a witness more seriously than that. Uh, unless you accept her as outweighing all the other evidence you've got. Now, uh, there's um, somebody who saw it about, uh, there's another unnamed witness interviewed by the Times, isn't there? A woman who said she saw her outside at the same time as Carolyn Maxwell did, and probably associated with the same group outside the Britannia. And then we've got uh, a man who was a tailor, if I remember yeah, right. Yeah, Morris Lewis. That's right. We saw her in a pub later uh, in the day. Well, he saw her twice, didn't he? So he saw, he saw her earlier on in the morning. I think he'd seen her earlier with Danny, hadn't he? And we have this great question, is Danny Joe Barnett's brother? Uh, is it, as Paul has suggested, another nickname for Joe Barnett? All sorts of questions as to who Danny is that he saw her with. The... We don't know, of course, whether those people were ever seen by the police. We may take it, since they put Caroline Maxwell up in the witness box, that they would have, now this is, again, deduction speculation, but if you take a witness seriously enough to put her in the uh, box at the inquest and accept her deposition, they would presumably have done some checking to see if they could find support for it. They would presumably have asked Mrs. Ringer or whoever was on duty in the Britannia, had she gone in there? and had some hair of the dog that morning, as she told Mrs. Maxwell. Um, they weren't into the business of, I can't think of them, ever for negative evidence at an inquest, because this wasn't like um, a lawsuit where you're trying to make one case against another. They're looking for positive evidence. They clearly did have to make firm decisions about who they put up where they got absolutely flatly contradicting evidence. Uh, because they didn't put up, we have no idea whether they didn't put up Israel Schwartz, who saw somebody attack Elizabeth Stride. Instead, they put up, uh, was it Brown or Marshall, who claimed to have seen her round in Rushfield Street at the same time. We just don't know why they didn't put up Schwartz, whether they thought his times were wrong or what. <laughs> they put up Mrs. Maxwell, and they clearly put her up, drawing the coroner's attention to the fact that they didn't find this evidence reliable because the coroner warned her, didn't he, to be very careful, just as the coroner had warned Mrs. Mary Malcolm to be very careful. Yes, we do have three people who said they saw her alive at a time when it is reasonable to suppose that she must have been dead, because otherwise the murderer would have had to spend the whole morning cutting her up and would then have got out after that, and the body should still have been warmer than it was. <laughs> time of death, of course, something terribly unreliable in all these cases, completely bungled by Baxter Phillips in Annie Chapman's case. I don't take those three witnesses myself as strong enough to suggest that it was someone else they saw on the bed. I do note that um, Stephen Knight, who was very observant, you know, one cusses Stephen Knight for accepting Joe Sickert, one cusses Stephen Knight for going on accepting Joe Sickert and staying in print when he knew he had actually been blown out of the water. But he did a great deal of work, and he often thought very observantly and very intelligently. Now, he remarks that Mrs. Cox had seen Mary Jane the night before in a red or maroon crossover shawl. And Mrs. Maxwell, in her evidence, referred to it, and it looks as though Knight didn't go back to the original coroner's depositions, but took a misprint from the newspapers, which he thought was a malapropism she'd used, and said she referred to the macaroon shawl. And he says, there you are, she would be absolutely certain that she had seen 
uh, Mary Jane, because she's got the same shawl on that she had the night before, and so light is allowing for that possibility. But I noticed that one of the other witnesses, I've forgotten who, uh, said to the papers that Mary Jane Kelly was in the habit of rolling her punters, and that when she did so, to make her escape, she would immediately switch shawls with a friend and be out in another coloured shawl. This is speculation, but it might explain Mrs. Maxwell's evidence, and she's the strong one that the police took really seriously, if she saw somebody in Mary Jane Kelly's well-known shawl the following morning. According to one of the papers, she said she had not spoken to her for three months before her death, although she claimed to have known her quite well. Well, part of the knowing well is that supposedly they're living in the same street and seeing each other a lot and she actually hadn't spoken to her, and the implication is hadn't seen her for three months before that time. So I'm not sure how well she knew her, and I would tend to accept the obvious view of the police and coroner that, perfectly honestly, Mrs. Maxwell had made a mistake. Either the person or the day she got wrong. And keeping you, I will get down. And that was Martin Fido at the Cloak and Dagger Club in 1995. I would like to thank Martin for allowing us to release that presentation, Robert McLaughlin, and Allie Ryder for their assistance in putting this archive series together. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper and Victorian crime. And if you have any comments or questions about our podcast, feel free to find us on the Casebook message board or on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast. I would like to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time.